Al Jazeera podcast. Is it time? Yes. I can stand. Open the doors. Okay. Let's go. Everything I've done, I've done without the intention to occupy a political position in my country. I had such a great strong voice. Here, the glorious poor of the nation. Can you tell that I was dying? I know that, like every woman of the people, I have more strength than I appear to have. Oh, how they loved me. Their one and only Evita. That's what they called me. That's what anyone who loved me called me. The year is 1951, and the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires is buzzing with thousands of people. Behind the microphone on a pink balcony stands a woman in a designer black suit, her hair swept up in a sleek platinum blonde chino. I loved that suit. Dior was my favorite designer. It's election year, and her husband, President Juan Perón, has a fight on his hands. He's been in power for five years, but his populist policies, while generous to the poor, have been wearing thin. The economy is suffering. But no one is thinking of that now. My story is inspirational. I came from poverty, but through hard work and the love of my husband, Juan Perón, a hero of our country, I was able to not only better myself, but help to make life better for all Argentinians. Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a dramatized series that resurrects some of the world's most memorable figures. In this episode, we hear about Eva Perón, one of the most famous rags-to-riches stories to come out of 20th century Argentina. While powerful and popular, in hindsight, Eva Perón's life was complicated and controversial. Hindsight. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. I was born on the 7th of May, 1919, in Los Toldos a small town in the middle of the countryside. I lived with my mother and my four siblings in a smelly apartment near the train tracks. We were poor. I remember my mother worrying about where our next meal would come from. I never knew my father, Juan Duarte. I was told he was an important land manager, but he abandoned us all when I was barely one. My older sisters told me they used to live in a nice house with a maid when our father was around. But that ended when he went back to his wife. You see, my parents weren't married. Mother was his mistress. Her name was Juana Ibarguren. She worked herself to the bone to provide for us. Mistresses were not uncommon in Argentina in the early 20th century. The hyper-masculinity of machismo attitudes forgave men for such indiscretions, lovers and children outside of marriage. But the traditional culture showed no mercy for the women. 
especially once the affairs were over. The people of Los Toldos were no different. They labeled Juana a loose woman, and little Ava grew up as a pariah. Thank goodness for my sisters and brother, and our little dog. We were each other's friends, because no one else would play with us. But when I was seven, I learned the depths to which people would go to keep their distance from us. That's the year my father died suddenly. Mother took us to the funeral, but my father's wife tried to throw us out. I remember my mother begging her to reconsider. Estela, they are also his children. He left us no money, no future. Please. I felt such shame watching my mother beg like that. And I was angry at being subjected to such hostility. I swore that I would never, ever let myself get into that kind of position. In the end, Juan Duarte gave me his name, but nothing else. Her baptismal certificate apparently said Eva Ipaguren, her mother's surname. It's believed she took the name Duarte much later, apparently forging documents to mask her illegitimacy when she married. This is generally accepted among biographers. It's hard to prove otherwise. Her original documents didn't survive. We left Los Toldos when I was 11 and moved to Junín about 50 kilometers away. Junín was only a farming city. But it was a city at least, with more opportunities. My siblings were all old enough to work and chip in to help my mother. Eventually, life got better. Mother even opened a restaurant. We lived in a nicer house and there was always food on the table. And as for friends, we were accepted at first. But it didn't last. Word spread about my parents' relationship, and soon, the people in Hunin were just like everyone else. To them, we were the illegitimate brats of a home wrecker. Not the hardworking good people I knew us to be. But there's a rival version to her family's move to Hunin. It said her mother moved there to be with a married man that she had a local, so-called, protector. It was better to be a man in those days. Fathers and husbands came first. Women didn't even have the right to vote back in the 1930s. I needed an escape, and when I was about 12, I found it in my first true love. You could get three movie tickets for a great price at the cinema on Tuesdays. So that's when Elsa, my first real friend, and I would go. She was an orphan, an outsider, just like me. I idolize the glamorous woman up on that screen. Norma Shearer, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford. No one could take their eyes off them. They were adored. You see, Elsa, that is going to be me one day. I had the looks, fair skin, big dark eyes and dark shiny hair. 
I imagine myself a glamorous somebody in a marvelous city where only wealth existed, where everything was beautiful and outstanding. In the 1930s, Argentina was at the start of the infamous decade, as it would later be called, a 13-year period of political instability, electoral fraud, and repression. The vast majority of the country's wealth lay in the hands of a tiny elite, only about 2,000 people. Her country was crumbling, but young Evita was otherwise occupied. In my early teens, I got to work getting famous. I started small, putting on plays with my sisters on the street corner. Oh no, father, please don't leave us. I did readings at the local record shop. I will bring you happy flowers from the mountains, bluebells, dark hazels, and rustic baskets of kisses. I got really good at poetry reading. I did one at all my school assemblies. If suddenly you forget me, do not look for me, for I shall already have forgotten you. Two of the richest and handsomest boys in town asked Elsa and me out. They invited us to a fancy hotel. We imagined a romantic evening. Maybe these were our Prince Charmings. Of course, that's not what happened. Hey, get your hands off me! We rejected their advances. They pushed us out of the car and left us stranded on the side of the road. They were from a different class, so to them, I was disposable. It seems like every period of my life comes with a memory of some injustice tormenting me and tearing me apart. It wouldn't be the last time I was treated like dirt. I had to get out of Junin. I couldn't help but feel that if I stayed, I would always be a nobody. I had to go to Buenos Aires. I was 15 and still in high school, so my mother was against it. She thought it was a silly child's dream to be an actress. But after a lot of pestering, I convinced her to take me to the city for an audition at the national radio. Good morning. My name is Eva. I got the part. It was a short contract and paid very little, but I was ecstatic. It happened so suddenly, I didn't have time to tell my sisters that I was going to be on the radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I will be reading Where Do the Dead Go? A poem by Amado Nervo. Paradise exists, but it is not a place which the belief common pretends, after the sullen and sad. And so Eva begins her new life in Buenos Aires. But how did she really get there? The prevailing myth tells of a conniving young seductress who used a famous tango singer to escape Hunin. But Eva swears her family was supportive, helping her move to the big city with her mother's blessing. There is little consensus on the details of her life. There's her usually more sanitized version alongside two or three other narratives, usually meant to tarnish her reputation. The modern approach is to consider all of it. (laughs) 
Buenos Aires in the early 20th century was famous for its Art Nouveau architecture, tango, and thriving cafes. The city was nicknamed the Paris of Latin America, an ideal setting for the arrival of our young ingenue. Hello, I'm Eva. I'm 16 years old and I'm auditioning for the part of the princess. Success did not come to her overnight. She shuttled between sleeping on friends' sofas or in hostels. Hello? Really? Yes. It's not very much money. No, I still want the part. It was all radio and small plays. But I got a few film roles. Rolling and action. But I was never really as good on the screen as I was behind a microphone. When I was 20, I landed a lead role in a series of radio soap operas. It was the first time anyone ever wrote a script for me. I'm a fool, falling in love with Mr. Rodrigo's son. But I can't help but hope. Ava was a high school dropout and spoke with rural accent. She was often cast in the role of a poor country girl in love with the boss's son. She became instantly relatable to the thousands of maids, housekeepers and women working in the factories of Argentina. Not only did they hear someone on the radio who sounded like them, but for once, these working-class women were at the centre of their own fairy tale. By the time I was 24, I was making 35,000 pesos a month. My entire childhood, we struggled to make ends meet. And now, I was one of the best-paid radio actresses of the time. Ava's fame would soon put her on the same path as her future husband. More on that after the break. While Ava was busy building her fame in Buenos Aires, the country's political and economic stability were crumbling. Argentina's lucrative exports stagnated at the start of the Second World War, and it didn't improve. Despite pressure from the United States, Argentina refused to give up its neutral status. For much of the war, anyway. In 1943, accusations of fraud swirled around the current and previous government. People were frustrated. Then, on the 4th of June, it all changed. The military which opposed President Ramon Castillo's successor carried out a coup d'etat. Upwards of 8,000 soldiers marched onto the capital. General Arturo Rawson assumed the presidency. But three days later, General Pedro Pablo Ramirez forced him to resign. He was president long enough to witness one of the greatest tragedies in our country. An earthquake reduced the province of San Juan to rubble and killed 10,000 people. All of Argentina came together to help. I attended a fundraising gala to help raise money. That is where I met Colonel Juan Perón. Charismatic, charming, and yes, he was very handsome. I was 24 years old when we met, 
He was 48, but I didn't care about the age difference. Colonel Perron was a widower with no children when he met Ava. He was an established military man and a prominent figure during the relief effort. I knew then my world was about to change. Juan and I were united in our principles, and I hoped, in love, I will not leave your side until I faint. Then, I suppose it's a pleasure, or rather, an honor to meet such a beautiful woman. The duo began a romantic relationship almost immediately, advertising themselves as the perfect power couple. But the pair couldn't have been more different. Juan Perón was educated, cautious, and calculated. Ava, a high school dropout, emotional, and even crass at times. We had an instant connection, but I knew Juan still had a mistress. I had no desire to follow in my mother's footsteps, so I took matters into my own hands. One day, while he was still at work, I went to his house and packed the woman's belongings into a truck. Come, girl, don't be silly. It's time for you to go. Mm, yes, yes, over there. Take my boxes to the bedroom. I unpacked before Juan got home that night. I was to be the only woman in his life. In February 1944, Perón led a palace revolt and helped install his ally and superior, Edelmiro Julian Farrell. He got a promotion, too, vice president and secretary of war. Perón also retained his position as minister of labor. The government openly supported Axis-controlled companies. It was also accused of tolerating Axis propaganda. I was still acting and working at the radio, but I was also the companion to an important man. I began to change how I presented myself. I believe it was around this time that I dyed my hair blonde. With Ava, Juan Perón had an opportunity to get his message out. She even dedicated a show in her radio schedule to talking about the successes of the military coup. The revolution was made for exploited workers. It was made because of the fraud of dishonest politicians and because the country was bankrupt of feeling at the verge of suicide. Ava's impoverished beginnings and fans among the working class through her radio station helped soften Perón's political image. For Ava... Being at Juan Perón's side gave her the legitimacy she always craved. As we grew more popular, the oligarchy and the landowners grew more fearful of us. Hmm. When the rich think about the poor, they have poor ideas. Juan, however, was a beacon of hope. He froze the rent, created labor courts, provided workers with a minimum salary, paid vacation, severance pay, and rest on Sundays. For once, the rich had to respect the rights of their workers. Of course, they hated us. Naturally, they set out to damage my reputation as revenge. Juan and I were still unmarried, and when I dared to put my arm on the back of the presidential chair, they cried outrage. <laughs> They compared me to a serpent. One general even called me that woman. 
The democratic opposition had other reasons to dislike Juan Perón. They saw him as sympathetic towards the European fascist regimes. He even seemed to admire Nazi Germany's efficiency and technical advancements of Hitler's rule, seemingly ignoring the horrors of the Third Reich. See, si, Claro, it is an enormous piece of machinery functioning with marvelous perfection, where not even the smallest piece was missing. It's unclear of Ava's own feelings here. It's plausible she could be associated with both Nazis and anarchism. The very idea of Peronism was at times conveniently blurry. The ideology, which rejects both capitalism and communism, seemed to allow, or favor, a hodgepodge of interpretations, something the power couple used to their advantage. Politicians from his own party worried about Juan Peron's totalitarian language. He referred to his enemies as foreign elements, a thin veil for the xenophobia and nationalism that demonized anyone who failed to back him. But Perón had supporters, and in September 1945, they descended on the capital. In turn, opposition groups led their own mass demonstrations. On the 8th of October, Perón's enemies in the Navy told President Farrell that he had to go. Otherwise, troops would march on the capital and overthrow the government. Later that day, I was fired from the radio station. We were being persecuted. But when Juan's supporters found out, thousands came out into the streets to protest. I felt reborn standing in the middle of the crowds. It felt as though by saving Perón, the people had saved me too. The day after the march, the government announced an order to arrest Juan. They said it was for his protection. Lies. We went into hiding, but the next day, we heard the order for his arrest had been reversed. That was also a lie. We were in the streets of Buenos Aires when the chief of police approached us. They took him back to our apartment to pack a bag and then dragged him out the door. No, please don't take him. No, I won't let them take you. They pushed me away just as the elevator doors shut. The government had publicly denied Juan was in prison, but the truth got out. His supporters were planning to strike. The least I could do was support them. Good evening, my friends. Eight days after his arrest, a huge general strike paralyzed Argentina. An estimated 200,000 people marched to the presidential residence demanding Perón's freedom. Perón claimed to fight for the rights of unions and workers. The press used to call those hard workers los descamisados. It was meant to be condescending. It translates to the shirtless ones. But I only ever said it with love. Finally, at almost midnight, Juan was released from custody and appeared on the balcony of the Casa Rosada. Workers, as I stand here in the midst of these sweaty masses, 
I would embrace you as I would embrace my mother. I thought, one needs only to see Perón to believe in him. What happened in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago was repeated here. A bold comparison. While it wasn't the second coming of Christ, it was the start of the rise of Peronism. After his release, we were married in a private religious ceremony on the 22nd of October, 1945. Only my mother and a few friends were there as witnesses. I do. I do. It was a joyful and sacred day. And now, with his famous wife by his side, Juan Perón began his official campaign for presidency. I decided to leave acting altogether to focus on the campaign. The workers of Argentina had saved us both. I owed them that much. Hello, my descamisados. Eva Perón's candid warmth certainly made her husband more popular. He entered the presidential race with no official party, no electoral organization, and hardly any funds. Though Evita didn't speak publicly during her husband's campaign, she stood beside him during every speech, a first for any candidate's wife. On the 24th of February, 1946, Juan Perón won the presidential election. My love, you are the president of Argentina. And you, my love, it's first lady. But titles seemed not to matter to anyone. To the rich, I was still the poor girl from a small town. The men wanted me out of their politics, and their wives wanted me out of their high street stores. The local fashion houses were so afraid of losing their prestigious clientele, they had two collections for each season. What do you mean I can't have this one? One for me and one for everyone else. Fine. Show me what you've saved for me. Argentina's economy was thriving after the Second World War, while European economies were struggling. This gave Argentina a guaranteed export market. After 30 long years of hardship, Argentina had money for public spending, and skilled immigrants were immigrating quickly. It seemed as if all of Argentina's problems had suddenly disappeared with the rise of Juan and Evita Perón. There are so many gold ingots on the floor of the bank, it's almost hard to walk around. First, we nationalized major industries, including the British-owned railway system. Then, we pushed for labor reforms, unionization, and a proper pension system. While Juan managed the politics and the media, I focused on our party's social policies. I went down to the factories, the streets, and the neighborhoods. My descamisados, let me hold your hands. What? No, please. Don't worry about my clothes. I've come to see you. I even run the ministries of health and labor and manage enormous budgets. She was a de facto minister. Ava even imposed her own people on Juan's political office, suggesting her brother take the role of private secretary to Perón, despite a total lack of experience. Ava was a radical, 
while Perron was a populist. Two completely different personalities and political objectives running the country. I also had a place in the central post office to meet with the public and union affiliates three days a week. Please, my friends, form a line and I will speak to each of you in turn. Ava brought the people's needs to her husband's attention, even providing food, medicine and housing. Hardened unionists didn't like her, but for the working class, she was their Santa Evita. I helped build hospitals and a thousand schools across the country. Meanwhile, President Perón was behaving as if he was free from impunity. If opposition members refused his bribes, he expelled them from the legislature. He impeached four Supreme Court judges and replaced one of them with Ava's brother-in-law. If the press published something critical of his government, they were fined or simply shut down. Ava made no mention of any of this. She had her sights on Europe, but she was flying into a disaster. More on that after the break. The Inside Story podcast dissects, analyzes, and helps define major global stories. We get into the details with experts who explain how policies affect people. The Inside Story podcast by Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. In 1947, General Francisco Franco invited me to Spain. I had never been out of the country, let alone on a plane. But it was up to me to bring Peronism to the world stage. We'll call it the Rainbow Tour. I am a bridge built between the hopes of the people and the hands of Perón. On June the 6th, 1947, Ava left for Spain with her entourage in a private Spanish DC-4 plane. Another plane followed carrying her wardrobe. The Rainbow Tour was billed as a goodwill tour. It didn't go entirely to plan. For 15 days, we attended feasts and firework displays with General Franco. I stayed in palace rooms and dined by artificial moonlight. What has an illegitimate child like me done to deserve this? I received gifts and was honored with Spain's highest award, the Grand Cross, of Isabella the Catholic. Rome had agreed to host the woman they called the Argentine Mary Magdalene. But one night, several people were arrested after chanting fascist outside her window. It was a disappointing tour in Portugal as well. In France, she spent a vast amount of money on clothes designed by leading courtiers. The French were said to be surprised by her vast collection of jewellery. But in London, she was left fuming. Basta! I'm not going to see the English if I'm not formally invited. I've seen multiple dignitaries, even the Pope, but I'm denied a proper invitation from the King. There are varying accounts of what actually happened, but the common story is that she was invited to tea 
but not to spend the night at Buckingham Palace. Switzerland wasn't much better. People threw tomatoes at her. A newspaper back home published outrageous stories accusing me of using my tour as a cover for Juan to deposit a Nazi fortune into Swiss banks after I visited Bern. The nerve! Some Europeans didn't trust President Perón's perceived fascist rule and his ties to Nazi war criminals. Perón and his government had secretly imported and employed Nazis. He wanted specialists to help industrialize Argentina. He received former soldiers with no such experience instead. I returned home a very different woman. Despite her mixed reviews in Europe, Eva Perón returned to Argentina a hero, and she had some business to tend to. Women around the world had rights, but we still couldn't vote in Argentina. Working women, we must demand for the right to vote. President Perón will hear you. Speak out. Juan worked behind the scenes, lobbying with legislators to help Congress pass the appropriate laws to make it happen. On September 23rd, 1947, women in Argentina won the right to vote. My personal style began to change, too. I didn't have time for ostentatious outfits. Instead, I embraced Christian Dior's new look. Business suits with full midi skirts, dark colors, and I pulled my hair back in a bun. I also wore red lipstick. At 28, Ava's voice tended to be hoarse, but it was strong. Her long and fiery speeches became more polished. I decided to focus on my charitable work, but first I had to get rid of the Sociedad de Beneficencia. As first lady, I was meant to lead this charity for orphans, but they refused me. First lady or not, classism was still alive and thriving among the rich. The traditional ranks of society weren't about to let an illegitimate child into their social clubs. I had no time for a group of spoiled women who were more concerned with throwing galas than helping the poor. So I gave them their notice. Good evening, ladies. I think I've had enough of this. I'm disbanding your little society group. In June 1948, I created my own organization the Eva Perón Foundation. My goal was to provide finances and welfare for the poor. We built thousands of schools and hospitals throughout Argentina, and we created 14,000 jobs. This was the blueprint for a new Argentina, a welfare state that supported its people instead of forcing them to labor for the wealthy. And we were immediately more successful at attracting the donations. After all, The Argentinian economy was strong. When donations weren't given freely, they were forced. If a request from the foundation was refused by a business, sometimes their electricity was cut off. Or perhaps an unhelpful factory would be visited by an inspector, which was followed by more fines, until a spontaneous donation to the foundation came through. Bookkeeping. This is a vacation, not a business. Bookkeeping belongs in the cold world of capitalism. It has no place here. By the early 1950s, the Argentine economy was in a nosedive. 
Instead of creating stability, Perron's policies resulted in roaring inflation and a drop in commodity prices and wages. Food was being rationed, and the cost of living went up. In the shadow of an ailing economy, the Perons were seen as a pair of dictators. The resentment was bubbling up across the nation, the military, the church, and even the middle class. But then, in 1951, Ava, at 32 years old, was becoming very sick. One day, at a ribbon-cutting ceremony, I fainted. I had had my appendix removed, and the doctor said I was fine. So I returned to work. The people of Argentina needed me. A huge crowd gathered on August 22nd to show support for Juan. They unveiled a huge poster of both of us and demanded that I run for vice president. I asked for a few days to think it over. Military leaders despaired over Eva Perón and balked at the possibility of her becoming vice president. After a week of mulling things over, she announced her decision. I only had, and at this moment I have, only one ambition. That it be said in the history books, there was a woman next to Perón who took to the president the hopes of the people, who the people affectionately called Evita. Ever faithful to her husband, she abandoned any thoughts of being an elected politician. Juan Perón, for his part, survived a military coup attempt. He gave a fiery speech, but wasn't able to hold everyone's attention. Many were asking one question. Where was Eva Perón? I wasn't feeling well. I was suffering from fevers and abdominal pain, but I couldn't let it hold me back. I took a strong dose of morphine so that I could take part in the Peronist Revolution anniversary. But when I went to speak, I couldn't. <coughs> I, I couldn't speak in public anymore. I was in too much pain. In November, I gave a radio address to the public to remind my people of their duty. I would not let my years of efforts go to waste. Remember, a vote for anyone other than Juan Perón is a betrayal. If it is necessary, we will execute justice with our own hands. I ask God not to allow these madmen to raise their hands against Perón. For beware of the day when I will go down with the working people. I will go down with the women of the people. I will go down with the descamisados. And I will leave nothing standing that is not for Perón. I was so angry. Angry that I couldn't speak in public. Angry that I was getting sicker and I didn't understand why. My doctors even tried to trick me by adding weights to the scale. As if I didn't notice how thin I was getting. You are lying to me as if I were a coward. I know I have fallen into a pit and no one can get me out. No one would ever admit it to her, but Ava Perón was dying of cervical cancer. Though Juan Perón was told, the patriarchal nature of medical practice at the time meant they never told Ava she was dying. Instead, in order to secure her compliance, 
her doctors told her that she could be treated with drugs or an operation. Multiple treatments and even a hysterectomy was performed without her consent. But if Ava wanted a sympathetic ear, she didn't get it from her husband. No, I don't want to see her. I knew he was disgusted by my sickness. Maybe even scared of it. Unwell, but not one to give up, Ava worked from bed. She was belligerent and sometimes violent. She dictated a 70-page document entitled, My Message. I will not stand by and allow the enemies of the people to take charge. I refuse the imbeciles who call for prudence. People of Argentina, you must fight the oligarchy. <coughs> From my sickbed, I order the purchase of 5,000 automatic pistols and 1,500 machine guns. I planned to arm the workers of the trade unions and farm workers' militias. The military had already tried to plot a coup against Juan. The people would have to defend Perón. And I would make sure they could defend themselves. I took money from my foundation to purchase ammunition. Finally, I arranged for more than a thousand men and women to be trained in Cerrito Island under the leadership of a trusted governor. Juan Perón was livid when he found out. He felt his wife was out of control. And though it wouldn't be discovered for decades, an American doctor was flown down from Massachusetts to perform a lobotomy on Ava Perón. He was told the procedure was necessary to manage her pain at the request of her husband, but the consequences of this act seemed to indicate it was done to control her. On the 4th of June, Ava Perón made her final public appearance. I cannot sit up straight. We've created a plaster cast for you. Get my... What is it? My fur? Hide it with my coat. After the lobotomy, Ava's health declined rapidly. Less than two months later, on the 26th of July, 1952... Ava Perón died. She was 33 years old. Thousands were injured in the crush to see her body as it was being moved. To the poor, Senora Evita was a saint. Three years after her death, Juan Perón was overthrown and exiled to Spain. Any signs glorifying Ava or the Peronist party were banned. In 1957, Ava Perón was buried in Milan under a false name. In 1971, her body was exhumed and moved to Spain to be closer to Perón. In 1973, Juan Perón was re-elected, but died less than a year later. His wife and vice president, Isabella Perón, became president. She had Ava's body repatriated to Argentina and buried in the Duarte family tomb in Buenos Aires. Peronism survives today, but Evita's Peronism and its opposition remains a defining political and social feature of Argentina. Despite her short tenure as First Lady, her effect on the country, its politics and identity, is still as palpable and controversial today.
Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts, and their team is Managing Producer Tala Alisa, Editor Morgan Waters, Director, Producer, and Editor Tala Halawa, Assistant Producer Basant Samhut, Associate Producer Kaula Alhamuri, Sound Design by Taysir Kabani. Assembly Sound Editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Nessa Aref. Research by Rama Sabanek. Fact-checking by Tarek Ayub. Special thanks to Daniel E. Nijensen for speaking to us about the character. Ava Perron is played by Mercedes Velasco Suarez. Extra Voice is played by Danny Pardo, Anna Banderas. Recording by 5A Studios. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Asil Mansour is the manager of digital content strategy. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.